Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church in Cape Town. And I hope by the grace of God that uh, this sermon will be a blessing to you even as you continue in fellowship with your local church. Of course, if you're not attending a local church and you want to find out more about the various ministries at St Barnabas, then uh, can I encourage you to visit our website, www.sbbc.org.za. Now this morning, we're starting a short three-part series uh, under the title, Easter, A Matter of Life and Death. And uh, as we begin our first study, uh, can I invite you to open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 18. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Well, just so far in uh, God's word, uh, let's ask for God's help as we consider that text. Heavenly Father, please will you open the eyes of our minds this morning that we might see the truth and the reality of it as you want us to see it, that we might live in the good of it, for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the most imaginative authors of the last hundred years or so was a man called H.G. Wells. Uh, he wrote about a number of different things, including history and politics. He wrote brilliant short stories. But H.G. Uh, Wells was probably best known for science fiction. Uh, works such as The Time Machine, uh, The Invisible Man, and The War of the Worlds became classics during his lifetime. 
The language is a little bit old-fashioned, but his books are still widely read today. Now, H.G. Wells considered himself to be a religious man, but like so many brilliant people, the God that he believed in was a God of his own imagination. So, instead of beginning with what God has revealed about himself in Scripture, in the Bible, H.G. Wells started by looking at the world around him and he derived a mental picture of God from what he saw. In uh, one of his essays, he gives us his conclusion. It's meant to be humorous, it's actually rather sad, but listen to what he says. He says, The world is like a great stage production, produced and managed by God. As the curtain rises, the set is perfect, a treat to every eye. The characters are top quality. Everything goes well, until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown, causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into a wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which brings everything crashing down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to restore order from chaos. But alas, he's unable to do so. Poor God, says H.G. Wells. He is a very little, limited God. Now that was written more than 80 years ago, but it's a very up-to-date attitude to God today. Many people today believe that God exists, but they say, is he really in control? Or is he merely reacting helplessly to one crisis after another as they unfold before him? Now, at first sight, the passage we're looking at this morning might appear to confirm that view. Uh, Throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus has said that his main objective, the, the focus of his mission, was to make the Father known to the world. At this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has already done that, both through his miracles and through his teaching. But in the verse immediately before our passage, Jesus says he hasn't quite finished. So cast your eye back to chapter 17 and verse 26. I'm sure some of you know that John chapter 17 is one long prayer by Jesus. And in verse 26 he says to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And then in our passage, within the space of just a few verses, Jesus is arrested and on the surface it seems that events have moved decisively outside Jesus' control. How can Jesus possibly fulfil his mission of making the Father known when his enemies seem to have the upper hand. And it looks, doesn't it, as if perhaps H.G. Wells was right and that God has got a major damage limitation exercise on his hands. But this this morning I want to suggest that if if we read the text carefully, what we actually find is the opposite. 
And to help us, we're going to look at the text under three headings. First, the mastery of Jesus, because contrary to what you might think, Jesus is firmly in control of everything that happens in the passage. Second, the majesty of Jesus, because in this passage we're given a very striking picture of Jesus' identity. And then thirdly, the mercy of Jesus, because here we see Jesus demonstrating his ability and his willingness to save literally anybody. So firstly, let's consider the mastery of Jesus in verses 1 to 4. Now the important thing to notice here is that Jesus chooses the location of his arrest. Uh, Look with me please at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now think about this with me. If Jesus wanted to avoid being arrested, there were so many other places he could have gone to hide. He could have gone to the mountains outside Jerusalem and hidden in a cave. Or he could have gone to one of the remote villages a few miles outside the city. He could even have returned to Galilee. But John tells us that Jesus deliberately goes to the place which Judas knew was a favourite meeting place for Jesus with his disciples. Jesus knew that Judas would find him without difficulty. And yet there's more to it than that. What was this place? Well, our translation describes it as an olive grove, but the original says quite simply that Jesus entered a garden. Nearly all the other translations have the word garden and nothing else. Now remember, will you, that John was writing much later than Matthew, Mark and Luke. He'd had a lifetime to reflect on the significance of these events. And uh, better brains than mine believe that John is deliberately inviting the reader to make a comparison with God's first dealings with the human race in a very different garden. Now we haven't got time to look at all the details this morning but as I was preparing I was struck by one connection in particular. You see when we read Genesis 1 and 2 what is the impression that we have of the Garden of Eden? Well the Garden of Eden was a place of fellowship. It was a place where uh, the man and the woman walked with God in the cool of the day. There was a closeness between God and man but of course Adam disobeyed God and shattered that relationship for every generation that followed and just as an aside the coronavirus is surely a potent reminder that still today we're living with the effects of that broken relationship and here in John chapter 18 we find Jesus the son of God in a different garden which was also a place of great fellowship and happy memories between Jesus 
and his disciples. But in this garden, Jesus is offering himself as a willing sacrifice in order to restore the relationship between God and man that had been broken all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now that's only a detail and I leave you to think about whether you find it significant or not. But what I think is unarguable is that Jesus chooses the location of his arrest. It is not chosen for him. Now please notice also that Jesus chooses the timing of his arrest. Now in John's Gospel there have already been several attempts to kill Jesus and all of them have come to nothing. Uh, On previous occasions Jesus has always avoided being captured because the timing was wrong. But now it's Passover week and Jesus leads his disciples across the Kidron Valley. That's an important detail because the Kidron Valley uh, was running parallel to the outer wall of the temple. And uh, the archaeologists have discovered that there was a drain uh, running from the temple all the way down into the Kidron Valley to drain away the blood of the sacrifices. Now during Passover week, uh, more than 200,000 lambs were killed on the temple altar and their blood was drained away down into the valley below. Now I've no idea Uh, how much blood would come from 200,000 lambs but clearly it will be several thousand litres so when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley they couldn't avoid noticing that the rocks were stained red with the blood of sacrifice and no doubt as the disciples later would look back on the events of that night the blood from all those lambs would have reminded them that Jesus died when Israel was celebrating the Passover. And you'll remember that that was the night when the angel of death passed over every household that was protected by the blood of a slain lamb and the firstborn son in the family was rescued from the judgment of God. And when we understand that background, we understand, I think, why Jesus behaved as he did in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, did what? What did he do? Uh, Ran away and hid? No. Uh, Tried to negotiate his way out of a tight corner? No. No, Jesus stepped out boldly to confront his enemies. He went out and asked them, who is it you want? And of course the question that he's really asking is, who do you think you're dealing with? And actually that is John's question for us as we read this gospel. And especially as we read the account of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth, John is asking us, who do you think you're dealing with here? Well, keep that question in your mind as we move on to the next section, verses 5 to 8, where John shows us the majesty of Jesus. Now, we need to to use our imaginations here 
because we've already been told that Judas is leading a detachment of soldiers to arrest Jesus the word detachment is a military term for a force of about a thousand soldiers in practice it was often much less than that and in times of peace perhaps it was closer to 600 but that's still an awful lot of armed men and remember we're not talking about dad's army here these are battle hardened Roman soldiers so picture the scene in your mind it's night time in the garden Jesus and the disciples can see the lanterns of uh, this large military force uh, making their way steadily down the hill from Jerusalem and coming towards them and no doubt they can hear the clanking of their armour and the weapons and as they get closer they can hear even their voices as well now you see to the disciples this would have been a terrifying spectacle Uh, surely they were thinking well this is the end of the road to the soldiers of course uh, it was entirely routine perhaps really rather boring a lot of fuss over just 12 men led by Jesus who've come from a village that quite frankly nobody's even heard of so as far as they're concerned Jesus is no one very special why all this fuss over Jesus of Nazareth and then in the middle of verse 5 Jesus identifies himself and it's important to know that in the original he uses just two words I am that of course is the personal name of God in the Bible the word he isn't in the text I am was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush when he commanded Moses to deliver his people from slavery with mighty signs and wonders and now here Jesus claims that name for himself and then immediately in verse 6 we read when Jesus said I am they drew back and fell to the ground now think about that you see to an uninformed spectator just one man alone and apparently defenceless standing before 600 heavily armed well trained Roman soldiers I mean the outcome looks beyond doubt but instead that entire troop falls to the ground powerless before him so you see just for a moment Jesus is revealing a tiny fraction of his divine power to overcome all his enemies now because we know Jesus' true identity we know that this was the same power by which God had destroyed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea and it was the same power that Jesus had used to still the the storm on the lake uh, to heal the sick to raise the dead so you see there's no question is there that if he'd wanted to Jesus could have destroyed all of them on the spot but the question you and I need to ask is why did Jesus do this what on earth is the point 
I suppose in one sense it was a warning to this tiny army that they've seriously misjudged him and that they're in way over their heads. And uh, just as an aside, what do you think Judas might have been thinking as he struggled back to his feet? Uh, Was this perhaps the moment that he began to realise that he'd got it all wrong? Well, we can't be sure. But but the main point, it seems to me, uh, of this display of power was to show that these soldiers could not possibly have arrested Jesus unless Jesus had been willing for them to do it. Isn't that the point? And John is reminding us that Jesus went to his suffering and went to his death willingly. Now my friends, if that is true, and it seems to me that you would have to work very hard indeed to make the text say anything different, then don't you think that he is just as willing to accept you and to forgive you? You see, if Jesus was not forced to go to the cross against his will but went willingly, well, why would he turn you away? So John has shown us the mastery of Jesus. He was in control of his own arrest. He's shown us the majesty of Jesus who went to his death willingly for the sake of you and me when he had the power to avoid it. And then thirdly, he shows us the mercy of Jesus in verses 8 to 11. In verse 8, Jesus answered, If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And John says, This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now we've just been told that Jesus knew all about the agonies that lay in front of him and yet at this very crucial moment his first thought was for his disciples and he surrenders himself in order that they can go free. Now that I think is a beautiful picture of Jesus' love and his concern for all his followers. But was he concerned only for those 11 disciples then? Well, time and time again uh, in these chapters of John's Gospel we find John showing us in the events of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth that he's pointing to a much bigger picture. And here in verse 9 John says that this was the fulfilment of a promise that Jesus had made much earlier in his ministry. Uh, You'll notice a footnote at the bottom of the page that tells us he's talking about John chapter 6 and verse 39 and I think it'll help us if you can keep one finger in John 18 and turn back to John 6 and verse 39. John chapter 6, verse 39. And Jesus is speaking here. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up 
at the last day. You see, after a lifetime of reflecting on it, John has understood that what Jesus did for his disciples in the garden the night before he died is a picture of what he does for everybody who looks to him and believes in him. And just as Jesus stood between his disciples and those Roman soldiers and protected them from shame and from death, so Jesus does exactly the same thing for every true believer in every generation. He he stands between us and everything that would separate us from the presence of God and make it impossible for us to enjoy fellowship with him in this life and the life of the world to come. Now how does he do that? Well come back now to John 18 because this is actually the main point of the whole passage. In the closing verses of our passage Jesus says that the Father has given him two things. In verse 9 he says that the Father has given him a people. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus says, I have not lost one of those you gave me. In other words, I keep all of your people perfectly safe. And then in verse 11 he says that the Father has given him a cup. He says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now in the Old Testament the the cup was a way of talking about God's anger and the, the point of the imagery is that the cup contains the full measure of God's anger and not just a tiny bit of it and it must be drained to the dregs. So there's a place in Isaiah's prophecy where God speaks to the people of Jerusalem and he says this Awake, awake Rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. That's Isaiah 51 verse 17. And the point is that these two gifts are connected because Jesus knows that all of us by nature deserve God's wrath We have all rebelled against God. We have all broken the relationship with God for which we were created. The problem is that most people refuse to see it. You see, so many of the things that we do wrong, initially, at first, well, they feel quite nice. They might be bearing a grudge against someone that's hurt us. Or maybe trashing somebody else's reputation maybe at the office or even in the ministry or perhaps it's harbouring lustful thoughts initially all of those things can feel quite nice we can feel justified in doing them but sometime later and it might be a few hours it might even be a few days but sometime later guilt follows and we know that what we said or what we did was wrong And you see, that feeling is is just a tiny echo, a tiny reminder 
that by ourselves we deserve God's wrath. It's a God-given echo of that. But you see, Jesus wants you to look to him and to believe in him. And that means that you've got to let him drink the cup of God's wrath for you. Have you done that? Have you done it? If you haven't, as we close, just think about the high priest's servant in verse 10. There he is, he's, he's come into the garden and he's come into the garden with the enemies of Jesus who are looking to kill him and uh, Peter, leaping to Jesus' defence, slices off his ear. Now we don't know anything about uh, Peter's swordsmanship Uh, We don't know whether he was exceptionally good and did precisely what he meant to do or whether what he actually wanted to do was cut off his head and missed. But Peter wasn't a gladiator, was he? He was a fisherman. So you can draw your own conclusion. But the point to notice is that Jesus will not let Peter finish the job. And in the same account in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus healed the high priest's servant with a touch. I wonder if you can see the significance of that. The very, very last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry was an act of astonishing mercy and kindness to one of his enemies. Now maybe that is an invitation. Perhaps that is a nudge to someone watching this morning. At present you're an enemy of God. And perhaps you can see for the first time that Jesus is offering his mercy and his kindness to you. That he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath very specially for you. And if you are understanding that, maybe for the first time, I want to encourage you to put your life into his hands this morning. So in a moment we're going to be quiet and then I'm going to help you do that Uh, I'm going to pray a short prayer, phrase by phrase and if you believe that Jesus is calling you to put your life into his hands well why don't you echo this prayer in your heart so let's be quiet for a moment I'm going to pray Lord Jesus thank you that you drank the cup of God's wrath for me thank you that you did it willingly this morning I'm handing over my sins to you I'm opening the door of my heart to you Please come in as my Saviour to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. Come in as my friend to be with me. I want to serve you for the remaining years of my life in complete obedience. And I'm asking this in your precious name. 
Amen.